Good morning. Uh, Happy New Year. Um, So I started 2024 with Pink Eye. So that was was really cool. Uh, I didn't realize Pink Eye wasn't just about your eyes, but it came with like other stuff, like fevers and coughs and stuff. So I might sniffle a little bit. Uh, But if we keep our distance and we don't greet each other with a holy kiss, we all should be okay. So, New Year, we're starting the New Year off with a new series, uh, walking through the letter of 1 Corinthians, which the Apostle Paul wrote sometime between the year 53 and 55. And we know that he wrote this probably as 2 Corinthians, right? So we have it here as 1 Corinthians, but we know that we're reading somebody else's mail when we jump into this book, right? We jump into this letter because there's been some interaction between the time that Paul planted the church in Corinth, and now he's writing to them about some things that are going on, and it is an absolute train wreck, right? And the whole book is broken down into two major sections. The first six chapters is Paul kind of responding to some of the things that are going on that he knows about, that he knows they've kind of gotten off focus, they've got distracted by some things. And then the rest of the book, past chapter 7, is him responding to specific questions that they've written to him, asking him about. So he's actually like addressing these things now. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. We won't be going verse by verse, but we are going to go kind of thought by thought and try to cover as much as we can throughout this. Before we jump in, we have to know a little bit about Corinth as a city and as a culture. Because although we're reading somebody else's mail, what you'll notice is that it ends up sounding a lot like the culture that we live in today. It ends up sounding a lot like describing the church in the culture that we find today. Some of these things will apply specifically to us right here as brothers and sisters at Springville. But a lot of it, you'll start to see some of the exact same tendencies in the church at large in our culture. So the city of Corinth was a Roman colony It was a booming port city with new people and new money all the time, right? So it was just kind of this this blustering city where there was all sorts of commerce. There was all sorts of mixing and diversity of cultures, of religious beliefs, of philosophies about how to live kind of the best life, how to live a full life with a lot of new people and a lot of new money. It also was kind of the entertainment capital of the ancient world. There was a a, a really big entertainment scene and celebrity culture. And there was this key word, we're going to see it this morning show up, uh, a group called the sophists, say sophists, right? It's the same word that we get the Greek word wisdom, like philosopher, lover of wisdom. And there was this group of sophists who were kind of the influencers of the day, right? They didn't have 4K cameras or YouTube or TikTok, but they were the influencers of the day. They were the soothsayers, kind of the the teachers of the cultural moment. And what they specialized in is not just teaching how to kind of live your best life, but they did it specifically as a spectacle to mock and kind of dunk on other sophists. And Corinth was like the center stage for that. But we also know that Corinth was super wild when it came to some of its moral practices, The word Corinthian in the original, uh, in the first century, became shorthand for a drunkard or someone who was promiscuous. It's like, oh, you're a Corinthian, right? So it was shorthand for this wild life, this sensual, decadent life. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. But you had this balance where you almost had like a little bit of Vegas, uh, but a little bit of Silicon Valley, right? And that's what Corinth was. You had as many strip clubs as you did TED Talks, 
right? That's what's happening in Corinth. It's this very interesting kind of tension between people doing them and living their life however they see fit, but also this underlying hunger for hope and wisdom and life to the full. Very interesting. It sounds a lot like our culture today. And I think the biggest miracle that we're going to see is that Paul writes a letter to a church where in Corinth, smack dab in the middle of that city. And we're reading someone else's mail, but we'll start to hear some of the, the, the tenure come and apply to us too, because it's a messy church. There's challenges inside and outside. They're suing each other. Divorce is rampant. Sexual sin is wild. They're divided on all sorts of social and cultural issues, but also relational tension. They're getting drunk at communion, right? Church is wild. <laughs> like Dave just read from 1 Corinthians 11, and that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's like, you guys are, what? What, what are you guys doing at communion? Right? That's not what this is for, right? So there's all sorts of stuff going on. Their, their worship services are wild, like just chaotic. They don't know what's going on. They don't know they're left from their right. And Paul shows up and writes a letter to them to remind them that they are a church planted in a city, but the city is starting to get planted in them. So if you want a thesis, that's what Paul is doing all throughout the letter. He's like, no, no, you are the church in Corinth. You're not the church that should reflect Corinth. You're the church in the heart of Corinth, called to be distinct and morally resistant and offer the world an alternative way towards life to the full. That's his thesis. The big idea over and over and over again that you'll see us come back to is that he, Paul, is reminding them to keep the main thing the main thing. There are so many things to be distracted by. So many distractions inside and outside the church in Corinth, but also for us today. There are so many things that draw our eyes away from the foundation of the Christian faith, and that is Jesus. That the heart, the core, keeping the main thing, the main thing is Jesus. That the Christian life from beginning to end is about Jesus. It's not about how we're even doing with Jesus. It's not even about how the church is doing with Jesus. It's not about how conservative or not we are. It's not about even our Bibles. It's about Jesus, right? Watch how he starts this letter, the first nine verses, and you tell me what you think Paul is going to talk about over the next several weeks. Watch. Paul, called an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, great name, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of the grace given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and in all knowledge. And in this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Now talk about going to the school of redundancy school, right? Like Paul is just getting them back to, he's like, you're so distracted. You're so distracted sometimes by evil stuff, but sometimes just dumb stuff. Like there's only so many TikTok dances you can do before you're like, this is really dumb, right? And this is what Paul's doing. Like he's drawing his eyes, their eyes back to the point of the Christian faith. Ten times in the first ten verses of his letter, he says Christ Jesus. That Jesus is the center of our faith. It's about who Jesus is, who he claims to be. It's about what Jesus taught. It's about how Jesus lived. It's about what Jesus accomplishes for sinners and what he will do one day to finish what he started. Amen? That's what Paul's excited about. That's what we're excited about. This is Paul's grid. He doesn't go and just start kind of tackling issues. He starts with the grid so that he is going to read everything through Jesus Christ. And often for us, and it's very subtle, Jesus can be like prominent, but not preeminent. Jesus can be secondary, subtly, and not primary. Our plans, our devotionals, how we're doing, our own personal development and growth, our own little theological hobby horses, our politics and our perspectives, our comforts and our entertainment, our money and our retirement fund and our career advancement can really, if we're honest, and that's if we are, become primary. And what we end up doing is we end up inviting Jesus into our heart instead of laying our lives down at his feet. And Paul is calling the Corinthian church not to focus on all the nonsense that they're, that they're up to. He's going to get there, but he's calling them back to the foundation of their faith. He's calling them to look back to what Jesus has done in them, the testimony of Christ, he says, so that then they're able to look at their life, reevaluate and examine, and then go through life with the grid of Jesus holding it up. He's drawing their eyes higher. He's drawing their eyes to Christ to his glory alone, and reminding them that that is the bread and butter of the Christian life. Oswald Chambers said, beware of anything that competes with your loyalty to Jesus Christ. I think that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's heard there's other things competing. There's distractions. There's things getting in the way of the church being the church. And he uses a key word here in Greek, and it's ekklesia. Say ekklesia. Right? He calls them the ecclesia in Corinth, which in English just comes through as church. But ecclesia is more than just church. Ecclesia is a called out group of people. Ecclesia means called out ones. Right? So you're called out of something to become a new something. This word, very interesting, I just told you about the sophists, is the same word that was used in the ancient world about political groups about allegiances to different philosophies and schools of thought. Those were ecclesias. They were groups and schools of thought, political views or postures. And Paul uses that term on purpose because he's kind of like taking a little jab at kind of the schools of thought of the day. But most importantly, what he's saying is you've started to identify with allegiances instead of Christ. You've started to say that you belong to this school of thought or this philosophy or this political agenda and you've forgotten that the Christian life is about belonging to Jesus Christ. That that's your identity. That we are called out now. And notice that he identifies them as sanctified. He calls them saints, which is wild because you're like, wait, I thought they were like wildin', right? 
I thought they were living crazy. And you're like, they are. And that's exactly why Paul is reminding them, not just saying, hey, stop it, right? He's reminding them of their identity. He's calling them back and saying, you're saints. You're called out of all that. You're holy ones. Who you are is not lining up with how you're living. And he reminds them of that. All throughout the letter, he's going to show us what that holiness looks like, what that sanctification looks like, what that idea of of being a saint or called out ones. You don't become holy by your own effort. You become holy by belonging to the God who alone is holy, right? That our identity shifts, that our life now belongs to the God who is holy, and he alone is holy. Do you know what word is used to describe God more than any other word throughout throughout Scripture? Holy, that he's holy, that you can't quite define him. He's distinct, he's set apart, he's, he's different than any of our expectations. We can't fit God into our three and a half pound brain because he's holy. And he shows them that holiness shows up as a countercultural way of living life to the full. Notice how he doesn't start. This is important for us, especially in a culture like ours. He doesn't start by ripping on the Corinthian culture. You you guys catch that? He doesn't start and be like, whoa, look at all them, right? He doesn't start by like ripping on how they're, they're, they're pursuing pleasure and how they're identifying themselves and how they're defining personhood and how they're looking at sexuality. He doesn't start by doing that. He draws their eyes to themself. And later, actually, really convicting, in in chapter 5, he talks specifically about sexual sin and sexual issues that are happening, not out there, but in here. And so often the temptation is that we get away with, as the church, having a fetish about pointing out the sins of a culture who doesn't know Jesus so that we can ignore and not pay attention to what's going on right here, right now. And Paul's like, that doesn't cut it. You're called out of that. You're called out. It's by grace and mercy alone that you are saved. You didn't do this. You were brought home, and now you belong to the God who is holy. So here's what I'll say. If you are a follower of Jesus in here, you are a saint. You are a saint. That's who you are. You are in Christ. But you are a saint with a residual memory and impulse towards sin. Amen? That, that, that's just who we are. On this side of heaven, that is who we are. But our status doesn't change. Because our status of called and saved and sanctified is not based on how well we live up to it. It's based on the God who saves us. And so just hear me really clearly. Some of us are walking in here this morning banged up because of our own temptations and our own trip into sin right now. But you have to understand that there is a difference between being called out and belonging to Christ and resisting sin and walking away from sin and stumbling towards Jesus versus making peace with our sin and making it our identity. And in chapter 6, he says that to them. He says, such were some of you. After listing some of the most gnarly things you can think of. And he's reminding them, that's what you were before. Don't allow your old identity to come in and start to change the way that you understand yourself and the world and others and success and your body and all of those things because you are in Christ, you are called out. Then, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 10, he sets the table for the rest of the letter, okay? So he's going to set this. This is kind of like his 
main thesis that he's just going to unpack and apply and kind of massage in different ways. And watch what he says, verse 10 through 13. Out of all of that, he's reminding them who they are. Then he says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions, no schisms among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. He's like, I got receipts, baby, right? He's like, I, I know, okay? They've told me. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, that's Peter, or I belong to Christ. Here's this question. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? And then he goes on, he's like, I'm so glad I didn't baptize more of you. <laughs> right? It's like, I only baptized a couple of you. And then a couple of verses later, he's like, oh no, and I also baptized Stephanos or whatever, right? So I, I just love how like real it is. He's like, oh, I forgot about that guy. I baptized that guy too, right? So stop it, right? He's like, I'm just so glad I didn't baptize more of you. So you couldn't just attach yourself to my name. Make this about me. So here's what's happening. What, what's happened in the church in Corinth is that the church has begun treating leaders and preachers like sophists. They've started to see them as factions that they can belong to, right? So again, a little bit too much Corinth in the church still because they're looking Paul and, and, and Paul, I mean, he doesn't, he's not that great of a preacher, but man, is he smart, right? Uh, Cephas, Peter, he got all that Jewish background stuff. I love when he talks about that, right? Apollos, we just know that Apollos was amazing as a preacher. We're just like, he's just really good, right? And then, and then I love the, hey, no, no, but we, we belong to Christ, I love those guys, right? At first you're like, oh, that's a good thing. Paul's not saying that's a good thing. Because what they're doing is like, we actually belong to Jesus, unlike you guys, right? We actually preach the gospel and understand the Bible perfectly, unlike you guys. This is everywhere today. This is everywhere. In a day of an age where I don't even like the words, like I almost like vomit a little bit saying the words, but like in a day of like celebrity pastor. <laughs> like in a day of celebrity pastors, what is that, right? In a day where we need preachers and sneakers, as an entire Instagram page to just out all of the people up on stage preaching about Christ but wearing 20 grand worth of drip. This is crazy, right? So like Corinth has nothing on us. We're killing it here, right? What's happened is the church has begun to treat leaders and preachers like sophists. How charismatic are they? are they? They're the best dressed. They're the most provocative. I love that. Pulpits where everyone's just provocative, right? We're not really saying anything of value. We're definitely not pointing to Jesus, but we're just being provocative, right? There's a lot of that too. What's happened is they're focused on the messenger and not the message. And in chapter 3, Paul comes back to this point. He's like, you guys keep talking about Paul and Apollos and Peter and all this kind of stuff. We are merely human, and you are merely being human when you do that. You've forgotten who we belong to. So in a day of cults of personality that masquerade as churches, this is so subtle. So you're like, well, I belong to Calvin. I belong to Chuck Swindoll. I belong to Charles Spurgeon. Or even more than that, I, I belong to the Pentecostals. I belong to the Baptists. I belong to the Presbyterians. Even worse, we don't even have people who know and love Jesus. I belong to Ben Shapiro. Uh-oh. 
I belong to Tucker Carlson. I belong to Joe Rogan. I belong to Taylor Swift. Coming for you, Swifties. What's happened then and what happens now is that cults of personality create groupies and not Christians. Here would be my question. How many more examples do we need of the best-dressed, most charismatic, most amazing, most entertaining church leaders to crash and burn and rip through their families, their own lives, their churches, before we stop elevating messengers over the message? That would be my question. And that's Paul's question. He's like, are you actually making this about Jesus? Because there's so many things we can make it about. Speaking of Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon hammered this over and over and over again because already in his day, even without YouTube, there was already this really, really strong pull to, to like, I belong to Charles Spurgeon. Listen to what Spurgeon said. The motto of all true servants of God, true servants of God, must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. There are so many pulpits and movements and churches built on God talk, just general God talk, or just principles for life with a few Bible verses kind of tethered to it, and it's not actually built on Christ and him crucified. And it's so subtle, but it's so dangerous. So just hear me on this. In the new heaven, new earth, I can promise you that there will be no mention not even a mention of how great of a preacher or teacher John Piper was, or Tim Keller was, or Tony Evans was, or Jen Wilkin or Beth Moore was. There will not be a single mention of how great of an evangelist Billy Graham was. There will not be a mention of how great of a philosopher C.S. Lewis was, how great of a leader Martin Luther King Jr. was. Why? Do you want to know why? Because by God's grace, they will be beside us on their knees in front of Jesus giving him all of the glory. And then you're going to turn and you'll be like, Spurgeon? Hey, isn't this awesome? Right? Like, isn't Jesus so good? He's like, yeah, that's what I spent my life doing. You're like, amazing, right? That, that's, that's our future. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what this should be. That if you come here on a Sunday and you walk away and you go, oh man, Ashley and the band, they did so good. The lights loved the color. It's my favorite color. <laughs> right? Ed, oh wow. So funny, so smart, so challenging. Dustin, so bald, like, <laughs> so encouraging, so whatever I am, right? Lester, uh, he has leprosy, you know, like. <laughs> I'm trying to make a serious point here. If we walk away on Sunday and we say, oh, wow, what a teaching, and we don't say, oh, wow, what a savior, we've missed the point. And that's what Paul's getting at. The beauty of his grace. We prayed backstage this morning, and I prayed, Lord, we've prepared the wood, but will you bring the fire? That's what we do week in and week out as we gather here. We just say, Lord, we've prepared the wood, 
in weakness, in our own flaws, in our own frailty. We just prepared wood. Would you bring the fire? So we're reminded about you and now you sustain us and how you save us. And some of us are coming in here killing it already. We're crushing 2024. Give it time, baby. This year's coming for you. Your own failures are coming for you, right? Some of us are limping in here already, but guess what? We just prepare the wood and God promises to bring the fire. He promises to light a fire in us, to change us, to save us. Some of us are here, we don't even know about Jesus yet. We don't know what to do with any of this. And the gospel starts with an invitation to say, just come. Just come. That's what Paul's getting at here. Later in chapter 3, he'll say, I planted Apollos water and who gives the growth? God does. He does it. We are just under servants. We just get up here and we just do our best as flashing arrows to point you to Jesus. Very rarely am I like looking for a turn off the highway and I, I slam on my brakes and I stop at the sign and I'm like, look at that sign. That is so, whoa, right? I go take a selfie on the 401 with, with the sign. Why? Because the sign is pointing us to where we need to go. And that's all of us up here week in and week out. If we are doing our job and we are not distracted, that we are pointing to Jesus and Jesus alone. And just like then and now, we see lots of slick, inspiring, entertaining things happening in the church today that empty the cross of its power and distract from the heart of the gospel. So Paul's just going to remind us of what the heart of the gospel is, okay? And that's how we'll close our time. He's going to remind us of the heart of the gospel. Watch verse 18 and 20. Right after saying, he's like, hey, I didn't come to preach with eloquent wisdom and crazy, amazing words, right? Watch what he says. For the word of the cross is, say it, foolishness. To who? To those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, he quotes Isaiah 29 here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater, the sophist of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God would please, was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. That word foolishness is moria, and it's where we get the English word moronic. Paul is saying that the Christian message is moronic, it's foolishness, it's stupid to those who what? Are perishing. Now here's what's really interesting about that word. In the Greek, the word perishing is actually the middle voice in Greek, which literally is saying those who are destroying themselves, the gospel sounds ridiculous. That was some of your stories. That's some of your story right now. You're like, this is ridiculous. You guys just ate Jesus' body and drank his blood. Like, you guys believe that a first century Jewish rabbi died and then got up again, and one day he's going to come back and resurrect everybody. And to that I would say, amen, baby. It is foolishness to those who are destroying ourselves until it takes off in your heart and it's not anymore. That's my story. Screw up and like, this is, this is crazy. Like, this, this is what you guys believe? And then Jesus showed up and he's like, yes, come with me. That's this, right? But notice, it's not just those who are perishing see it as foolishness. It's also the wisdom of the age that there's this clash, right? 
He's saying how we respond to the cross reveals where we are with God. That's what he's saying to us. So right now, how you responded to the cross this morning, how you responded to communion this morning, that is the gauge on where you are with God. If you are perishing and just destroying yourselves, it's either that you're too smart and you know better, or you haven't actually come and tasted and seen that God is good yet. But Paul says you're perishing. Those who are being saved see the gospel as the very lifeblood and the power. It's the life-changing kind of oomph that actually keeps us day to day. Yes, it saved us, but it's saving us, and it promises one day to save us. That's the gospel. And he quotes Isaiah 29. It's pretty cool there. Isaiah 29 is actually like a judgment oracle against Israel because they're doing all sorts of stuff, but missing the entire point. And he's like, hey, all your like worship stuff, all the songs you sing, all the Bible verses you know, they mean nothing if your heart is far from me. So I'm just going to show up and I'm just going to like crash on the wisdom of the wise and I'm going to overturn the intelligence of the intelligent. And Paul's pulling that forward and he's saying, guys, it's the same with us. And this morning I'm pulling it forward saying, in our 2024 Canadian culture, it's the same with us. I think we've tried to make the gospel sound like really cool and relevant. And by doing that, we've emptied it of its power. Like, you guys, you gotta, like, it's ridiculous what we believe. It's crazy. It just happens to be true. It happens to be the thing that God decided to structure all of reality around. You're just like, what? Okay, well, I guess we're going, right? That's this. And notice he contrasts the wisdom of the age with true wisdom, wisdom from God. And they couldn't be more upside down and backwards and different. Today, the wisdom of our age, the sermon that we are preached everywhere all day, is that, hey, the heart wants what it wants. Follow your heart. Do you live your truth? Be true to yourself. That is what's most important. And then you'll be free, you'll be happy, and you'll live a full life. The centerpiece of Western culture today is what? You. It's self. It's me, right? Self-esteem, self-help, self-image, self-actualization, self-empowerment, expressive individualism, whatever we want to call it, that is the centerpiece of the wisdom of our day. What is so crazy about that, do you know where true to yourself comes from? Anybody know? Hamlet, it's in Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, and it's specifically described of Polonius. Do you remember who Polonius is? He's the fool. He's the moron in the play. And Shakespeare says to live being true to yourself is to be a moron, right? Because it doesn't actually end in life. It doesn't actually lead to happiness. It doesn't actually lead to life to the full. That's crazy. Even back then, Shakespeare was showing us that this kind of self-empowerment message ends in despair. It ends in loneliness. John Mark Homer writes about this. Exact comment, and he says this, the widespread wisdom of the day is to follow our desires, not crucify them. But in reality, be true to yourself is some of the worst advice anybody could ever give you. Here's why. Giving in to the desires of our flesh does not lead us to freedom in life, as many people assume, but instead to slavery. And in the worst case scenario, addiction, which is a kind of prolonged suicide by pleasure. That's today. That is our day. That is the wisdom of the age. And guess what? 
Springvale, it's not working. Like, we don't have to even just dissect it and be a philosopher or a sophist to know that. We just look around, we're like, we're pretty unhappy. We're very addicted. We're very paralyzed doing nothing. Right? Like, we, we're, like Paul's bringing their eyes back. He's saying, live for higher than like a nice house and a cute family and a good RRSP. Right? He's like, like there's, there's more than that. Live for more than that. That's what he's putting them to. But here's how he says you get there. We preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. Now, I would have loved if he was like, we preach Christ resurrected. I would have loved that. So I'd be like, Easter, baby, let's go. Resurrection Sunday, let's talk about the power of the resurrection, right? Like, that's just like, yeah, right? But he doesn't. He says, we preach Christ crucified. Why? Why crucifixion and not resurrection here? Why the cross and not the empty tomb? I think Paul stresses this because it's kneeled at the cross only having our sin and our brokenness and our hopelessness and our despair and our desperate need for forgiveness, mercy, and grace that there's no more one-upmanship left. That's why. That there's a crucifixion of ourself that actually leads to life. He stresses the crucifixion because it's a humble posture of gratitude a hum, as humble recipients of God's grace with empty pockets and open hands that we can actually say nothing in my hand I bring but simply to the cross I cling that is why he stresses that because Jesus's invitation the starting point and day by day the rhythm of the Christian life is not to prop up ourselves. Or to just tell ourselves that we can do better. Or at least, hey, we're doing better than we used to. But it's to deny ourselves, right? Luke 9, I'll give you one example of this. Luke 9, verse 23 to 24. Watch Jesus' invitation. Then he said to everyone. Okay, so you need to hear that. If you're here this morning and you have not decided to follow Jesus, Jesus is inviting you right here. He said to all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. <clears throat> that is foolishness to the Greeks. That's so backwards and upside down to the wisdom of the day, right? It was then and it was today. Don't self-help yourself. Forget yourself. Don't live to just indulge yourself. Deny yourself. And then guess what? You'll live fuller than ever before. That's wild. Lay down personal control of your life. Your definitions of success and killing it and happiness and trust Jesus with it and you will experience way more happiness, joy, and success than you can imagine. But it comes with an eternal lens of the king and his kingdom. And that's Jesus' invitation. It's so counterintuitive because in our culture today, like no one's walking through life having like a nuanced, critical, like decision-making process of like, what do I feel and what do I want? And is it good for me? There's only two questions. Like, what do I feel? What do I want? So then I go, I use, right? And then I just repeat. So I just, I just, I just do that. That, that that's, that's, that's how we live. 
And Jesus' invitation is, get out of that. Just step outside of that cycle of just use and repeat. Want, use, repeat. Want, use, repeat. Get out of that. Lay down personal control. Deny yourself and you'll live full. Uh, Dave started by reading um, the, the communion passage from the message. And in the message of this verse, he says, self-help is no self-help at all. <laughs> Self-sacrifice is the way. My way, Jesus is saying, to finding yourself your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose the actual you? That's this. That's how upside down and backwards it is. So every time we try to get the gospel to sound less moronic, we empty it of its power. Because there's something so backwards, so counterintuitive to what we think we would see God as or how God should save the world or if God created the world at all. And it's so backwards and upside down and antithetical to worldly wisdom. And Paul's stressing that so that they don't lose the power of the gospel. So the wisdom of our age says, hey, you can do anything. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. The wisdom of our age says, live your truth. Jesus shows up and says, I am the truth. The wisdom of our age says, live your life. Go out and get it. Jesus says, lose your life and you'll find it forever. The wisdom of the age says, be yourself, follow your heart. And Jesus says, die to yourself and follow me. The wisdom of the age says, you were born that way, so just live how you feel. And Jesus says, you must be born again if you're to experience true life. The wisdom of our age says, you are enough. And Jesus says, my grace is enough. It's pretty absurd to invite us to pick up our cross because there's no comfortable way to pick up a cross. And I know we've like turned the cross into like necklaces and jewelry and stuff, but in the Roman world, it was so repulsive and so offensive because it was an instrument of execution of the worst criminals. And God puts his body on it, innocent, to save those who aren't innocent. And every single time Jesus mentions his death, watch how the disciples respond, right? He's just like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die though, guys, remember? And they're like, ah, right? No, 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 messiahs don't die, they reign. Like, we're about to rule, baby. Jesus is like, no, you're missing it because resurrection power is for the crucified. And if we want resurrection power, if we want life to the full, we need to pick up our cross and deny some of the things we want so that we will actually live in line with what we need. And that's this. That's this call. And it's so strange today. And honestly, we have to swim upstream in this current because it's so strange to even choose to go without something that you want today. We have so much, right? And then we're just like, well, I just want that. I just want this. I want this. Amazon Prime, baby, boom, right? I just have it. It's so counterintuitive, though. Jesus is inviting us to live and say, no, no, sometimes you have to deny what you want in order to actually understand what you truly need. And what we're going to see throughout 1 Corinthians is that the church in Corinth and the church right here is so extraordinary because it's so full of ordinary people like you and me. And whereas the world is going to continue to divide between nobody and somebody and then def define whoever somebody is or, or how, many, how much whatever you have, Jesus shows up and he celebrates the, the least educated, the most humble, the most weak, the most banged up, the most underqualified because God loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. I'm going to leave you with this. C.S. Lewis 
you know anything about his testimony, it is wild. He thought the gospel was foolishness. It was absurd. It was the silliest thing he had ever heard of. Until one day, he got on the back of a motorcycle with his brother to drive across Ireland to the zoo. And all he can say is that on that motorcycle ride, the holy hound of heaven caught him. And he left for the zoo thinking that this was absolute foolishness. And he got to the zoo seeing Jesus as Lord and Savior. And here's how he closes arguably one of his best written works. And then I'm going to pray. In mere Christianity, these are the last words he writes. Listen. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours anyway. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Springville, let that be our banner. Every time we're together, every day we wake up and we taste and see that God is good and that his mercies are new every morning. Let us live as the church in this city that we would deny ourselves, that we would pick up our cross because resurrection life is for the crucified. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so thankful you don't come looking for the best dressed, the smartest, the most beautiful, the most talented, the most gifted, but that you simply invite all of us who are the most needy to come. I pray that this would remind us as followers of Jesus to continue not to lean into our competence, but to humbly submit to our dependence upon you, that we would experience more life and more power because of that. And I pray especially for anybody under the sound of my voice this morning that has not yet followed you, that today would be the day where the holy hound of heaven captures their heart and that they would lay down their own definitions and pursuits and understandings and trust you with all of it because you promise that you will never let us down and give us life when we do that. We ask that we would leave here different than the way that we came, that you would continue to stir our hearts for more of you and less of us. And we ask all these things in the only name that does matter and ever will, in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, thank you so much.